don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I have been doing a lot of back-end work on the website and having uh, numerous full days of working on the thing while feeling like I got absolutely nothing accomplished. Um, Apparently, I'm having some sort of a JavaScript bug that has been completely... uh, I at least finally had the support from my... um, uh, the service I'm using for the website designer. Uh, They actually found that I've got two different versions of some JavaScript file and I'm, I should delete one. I'm hoping they come back with an explanation of how to do that because I don't really know. Um, but that's why I've been kind of away from the microphone. But we are going to jump into a really good one today. Um, and uh, I got a lot of these lined up, so I really need to get back to it here. Um, I'm getting behind. Uh, but this one's titled Bitcoin, Winner Takes Most or Winner Takes All. And it's by uh, Monsieur Mamadov and uh, Yassine Elmandra. Uh, If you're not following them, I will have their uh, Twitter accounts posted and as well as their uh, Medium accounts posted uh, in the show notes so you can check them out. Uh, They are both excellent sources for a lot of great discussion uh, around Bitcoin. And uh, uh, this was a really, really fun article. Um, And it's, it's it's one of those dives into the the core of the, the kind of Bitcoin maximalist argument is that are, are these things all a form of money and will this be split out over a number of different protocols or is this a, there is one money and you know maybe the rest of these are tokens or maybe they're nothing at all. Um, so without further ado, um, let's just go ahead and dive right into this one uh, because I think, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Again, this is Bitcoin, winner takes most or winner takes all, exploring market share capture in cryptocurrencies. This series will explore how the winner takes all or winner takes most notion applies to the cryptocurrency market. In part one, we will provide a high-level overview on the evolution of monetary systems up to the inception of cryptocurrencies, shedding light on the limitations of previous forms of money. In part two, we will explain why the clear winner, likely Bitcoin, should capture most, if not all, cryptocurrency market share. In part three, we will apply this reasoning to the global economy and determine the extent to which the cryptocurrency market may capture a share of global base money. Part 1. The Quest for a Global Money Before the rise of any universal monetary standards, barter was a common means of direct exchange. Subject to the problem of coincidence of wants, civilization came to understand the impracticability of barter. In an attempt to provide a solution to this impracticality, direct exchange emerged and was made possible with intermediary goods such as seashells, glass beads, and cattle. Over time, modern technologies like mass utilization of hydrocarbon fuel energy and importation 
considerably advanced manufacturing and transportation, making the world increasingly connected. Exploration and intercontinental trade became more prevalent, and the standard traits of money evolved to accommodate a more global context. This ultimately undermined existing media of exchange as the lack of absolute scarcity and low cost of production could not provide money guarantees and were exploited by increasingly advanced technologies. Specifically, outside groups learned how to easily reproduce region-specific forms of money. Unaware of the absolute abundance of their money, nations suffered severe wealth dilution. As the limitations in existing forms of money began to manifest, specific properties of monetary goods emerged that better fulfilled money's store of value and medium of exchange functionalities, including scarcity, durability, portability, fungibility, verifiability, divisibility, and established history. Through a process of monetary natural selection, goods competed with each other based on these demanded attributes, and in the 19th century, the world converged to gold as the global monetary standard. With the rise of gold, other forms of commodity money took form. Silver as a money was popularized because of the high costs associated with using gold in day-to-day -day trade. Silver's lower value per unit weight relative to gold made it easier to use for smaller transactions. For centuries, the gold to silver ratio remained between 12 and 15 and was recognized as the bimetallic standard. But this bimetallic standard ended up as nothing but a temporary phenomenon adopted to overcome insufficient technology. With the introduction of paper money backed by gold, which gave people the ability to trade any amount of value represented in gold terms, silver's monetary role was subsequently reduced. The graph below shows how rapidly the gold-to-silver ratio soared after the popularization of paper money. Begin chart. Uh, this is a long-term gold-to-silver ratio based in the UK, and it starts roughly in the 1300s and goes to the late 1800s, standing around uh, literally between 12 and 15, maybe upwards of 17 towards the end of the 1800s, and then just skyrockets into the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then peaks uh, just in the late 1900s at 95. Um, so a huge difference in the ratio, and it is still, even to this day, around 75. End chart. Through financialization, gold's limitations to serve as a global money began to surface. In particular, gold's physical nature and high value per unit weight made it vulnerable to centralization and its detrimental effects. With gold's lack of portability and the high friction in using a scale to measure the amount of gold in every transaction, the state intervened to establish standardized units by minting or coining gold coins. As citizens got acclimated with the conferred legitimacy and the infrastructure built around standardized units, the state felt comfortable engaging with what is known as coin clipping, a form of debasement whereby jurisdictions would reduce the content of gold in a coin and use the excess gold to finance expenditure at the cost of citizens. Later, goldsmiths, who provided services for custodying precious metals, introduced 
promissory notes, or IOUs, that were redeemable for metals. These notes, or paper money, eventually became commonly used in exchange. The goldsmiths understood that they could lend out more notes than gold they had stored in their vaults because people were unlikely to simultaneously redeem their gold reserves. This practice became known as fractional reserve banking. Goldsmiths, which later became banks, issued receipts in excess of the represented metal and generated massive profits as a result. The 18th and 19th centuries saw the formalization of the gold standard as the proliferation of banknotes and the less sound nature of silver made itself known. The gold standard was a monetary system whereby a country's monetary supply was directly linked to the value of its gold reserves, putting a cap on a nation's ability to inflate supply. By the 20th century, states began exploiting the limitations of gold and abusing the practice of fractional reserve banking, ultimately removing its viability as a global money. The U.S. was able to centralize gold reserves, often forcefully confiscating gold from its citizens, and began printing money in excess of their underlying reserves. Instead of attempting to redeem themselves, the U.S. under Richard Nixon canceled the convertibility of the dollar into gold and officially abandoned the gold standard in 1971. Ties between gold and paper money were in turn severed, marking the beginnings of fully unbacked fiat currencies. Below is a chart of the U.S. monetary base expansion relative to the value of U.S. gold reserves. Begin chart. This is the value of gold reserves versus the monetary base, and it basically just shows relative consistency up to the marking of the abandonment of the gold standard, and then an incredible growing and essentially a hockey stick chart upward um, massively in the thousands of billions of dollars at the end of the chart. In chart. Currencies. Currencies everywhere. Today, there exist over 180 currencies across 195 countries. The reason for such an anomaly is simple. There is no free market for currencies. Currency markets have been restricted by governments in order to maintain financial control. There are numerous laws and institutions set up for the exact purpose of inhibiting a free market monetary system. This includes enforced borders, legal tender laws, capital controls, state decrees, seniorage privileges, local control, local monopolies on violence, debt-extinguishing laws, capital gains taxes, implicit bailout guarantees for banks, central banks, and dozens of other artificial barriers. This type of legislation forces people around the world to keep using inferior currencies under the threat of direct or indirect violence or repercussions. The centralized nature of the financial system and flows allows governments and institutions to impose these restrictions and greatly limit people's ability to express their true demand for superior, more competitive currencies. Fiat money's soundness is now dependent on an authority's ability to enforce legitimate monetary policy. 
People living in countries like Venezuela are unable to reliably store their wealth due to hyperinflation induced by irresponsible monetary policy and limited availability of more reliable currencies due to strict capital controls. In addition, as the only form of legal tender, citizens are obliged to pay taxes in and accept the inferior currency in exchange for goods and services. The more competitive currencies, like the dollar, that do make their way into countries like Venezuela are sold at large premiums as the high demand is not met by the controlled supply. Until recently, citizens of countries like Venezuela had no way to opt out of this system and were forced to adopt easy money. The government's control of money has made it vulnerable to gross mismanagement. In an interview in 1984, Friedrich Hayek famously said, quote, I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. We can't take it violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is by some sly roundabout way introduce something that they can't stop, end quote. And in Free Market Monetary System, Friedrich Hayek notes that, quote, the monopoly of government of issuing money has not only deprived us of good money, but has also deprived us of the only process by which we can find out what would be good money. We do not even quite know what exact qualities we want because we have never been allowed to experiment with it. We have never been given a chance to find out what the best kind of money would be. End quote. Enter Bitcoin, the experiment that allows us to experiment. In 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto proposed Bitcoin, an alternative financial system free from top-down control. Bitcoin, quote, a system for electronic... Con Bitcoin, quote, a system for electronic transactions without relying on trust was not created to fit existing governments and financial systems. Bitcoin is the experiment that allows us to experiment. Unlike any money of the past, Bitcoin is borderless, permissionless, censorship-resistant, and easily verifiable. As such, Bitcoin may precisely be this, quote, sly roundabout way that bypasses prohibitive mechanisms and legacy financial institutions that restrict people's access to a free market for money. Bitcoin is often referred to as digital gold because it maintains and improves upon most of gold's properties, including scarcity and unforgeable costliness. Given its digital nature, bitcoins are easily divisible, portable, and unseizable, which enables it to be much better protected from the threats of centralization and the fate experienced by gold. First introduced by Vijay Boyapati and then further expanded upon by Dan Held, below is a table assessing Bitcoin, gold, and fiat's ability to fulfill the traits of money. Figure. This just goes through the, it's, it's basically a table that goes through the verifiability, fungible, fungibility, portability, durable, divisible, scarce, established history, censorship resistance, unforgeable costliness, uh, so on and so forth, and actually adds openly programmable and decentralized to the set of trades. And essentially shows uh, that Bitcoin has a high um, uh, characteristic in every single one of these, 
um, except for durable, it says moderate, and established history is low, whereas gold has various high, low, moderate, um, with things like censorship resistance, low divisibility, um, moderate verifiability, and uh, low op open programmability. Um, obviously, you can't really program gold. And then fiat has low for the majority of the chart. It's not very durable. It's not scarce. It doesn't have a very good established history because we have tons of these that are competing with each other, and they're all enforced by government. Low censorship resistance, uh, hard, no unforgeable costliness, um, uh, openly programmable, not the case, and decentralized, obviously not the case. Um, so it's just a figure showing these comparisons. I encourage you to go and just kind of get a visual idea of what's going on. Uh, obviously, we'll have the links to all of this stuff in the show notes. End figure. The rise of cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are first and foremost money. With the exception of a few, crypto tokens are either clearly intended to be money or are intended to be money but are obfuscated by technological jargon. As Bitcoin's community grew and its prices rose, other cryptocurrencies, often referred to as altcoins, began to hit the market. Many of these cryptocurrencies were built in an attempt to iterate and improve upon Bitcoin's, quote, fundamental design flaws and, quote, limited functionality. In 2018, 10 years after Bitcoin's inception, there are now over 2,000 cryptocurrencies. Contrary to the 20th century's locally nationalized market for money, the cryptocurrency market much better resembles a competitive private market where no coercive monopolies distort price signals by preventing competitors from entering. Given the open source nature of cryptocurrencies, anyone is free to create their own or modify existing ones, which is as simple as copying the publicly available code of an existing cryptocurrency. This in turn encourages open and inexpensive experimentation. The open source nature of cryptocurrencies is a promising mechanism to determine what the natural money of society might be. As Georg Guido Holzmann highlights in The Ethics of Money Production, quote, The only way to find out the natural money of society is to let people freely associate and choose the best means of exchange out of the available alternatives, end quote. Assuming operation under a free market, the question then becomes to what extent the natural money captures market share. While today's world has manifested itself differently, a glimpse of a winner-take-most, if not all, reality was seen with gold. Assuming a long-term time horizon, this same glimpse of reality may play out with cryptocurrencies, this time as more than just a temporary phenomenon. In part two, we explore in depth the validity of a winner-takes-all narrative by defining market size to be the total monetary premium of all cryptocurrencies and deriving what drives a good's monetary premium. We shed light on the merits of such a narrative. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that one. Um, I'm going to try to be back and throw in another episode tomorrow morning if I can. I can't guarantee anything. Like I said, uh, I'm, uh, I've been really busy lately, um, and I'm going to try to branch out my posts a little bit into some other topics. I think it will all be kind of Bitcoin and 
uh, cryptography related, but I think it will be more about just uh, cryptoeconomy.life was always supposed to be kind of a broad idea of living life in this uh, crypto world, uh, so to speak. Um, so uh, stay tuned with that. I'm doing a lot of basically live editing of the website. So if you see pages that are in complete disarray, um, that is probably because I am typing away and designing away on my computer at home. So uh, just so you know, um, when you go to cryptoeconomy.life, I've got like at least the latest, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 posts, I think, updated to a completely new design and format. And I'm finally getting into the swing of things to make it a quick process. And this, oh, pray to God that this will be the last time that I try to do an overhaul of how the website looks because I'm having to redo all of these episodes. Um, but uh, I've been in the process of a ton of organization of the stuff because it's so hard to go through 217 episodes of stuff. It, it needs to be better organized um, on the website. Uh, so check that out and stay up to date, and I'll try to keep you guys updated um, with new episodes. Um, as far as uh, that article, um, I think this is going to be a really, really fun series. Uh, this is a great, um, if you have not dug into the ethics of money production, um, uh, that is an unbelievable work. Uh, and I actually contacted Mises to see if they wanted a, a person to do the audiobook version of it. And supposedly I'm in line. Uh, they've got a uh, it's something that they're going to be doing at some point in the future, and uh, they said they may very well go with me. I don't know to what degree that's true or if they were just appeasing me or what, but hopefully you may, you may very well be able to hear um, the ethics of money production in audiobook form by myself one day, hopefully. Uh, we will see. Um, Friedrich Hayek uh, has a ton of great work, too. Um, uh, that quote, God, love that quote, that I don't believe we'll ever have a good money again before we take it out of the hands of government. Um, we can't take it violently. We have to have some sly roundabout way to introduce something that they can't stop. Um, that so perfectly, perfectly shows or demonstrates what the Bitcoin system is doing. Um, basically, that relationship between government and Bitcoin. That Bitcoin is this natural phenomenon that after it's created, it's just out there, and it's no longer under anyone's control, and it's basically programmable verifiability. It's, it's, it's truly is a brilliant system. And uh, that little traits of money chart, um, I would definitely, even though I tried to explain it um, uh, in the post, I would definitely go actually look at it um, and uh, think about it. And there's a number of things by Friedrich Hyatt that kind of break down the different um, elements of money and unforgeable costliness is a great one that you can find uh, on cryptoeconomy.life. The uh, uh, Nick Zabo's, um, uh, what was it? Shelling out, shelling out the origins of money goes deeply into the concept of unforgeable costliness and exactly those examples that uh, these guys are talking about when uh, they were saying that when money became a global system, the technologies of other societies basically um, revealed the, the lack of true scarcity of things that were used locally, like glass beads. Uh, glass beads were used uh, uh, in uh, numerous societies across the like, coast of Africa, and then when England uh, came uh, and, uh, or Britain came and was uh, basically colonizing 
they one thing that they did a lot was they had very very cheap uh, glass uh, glass making technology back in Britain. So they would make enormous amounts of these glass beads that was that seemed incredibly scarce for these locals, and uh, and then uh, they would go to these um, different. Uh, uh, minor civilizations and spend these glass beads and they're just like oh my god this is so easy we can just make tons and tons of these glass beads for hardly any cost at all and just take all of their produce um but these things happened on much much more gradual scales back then because you couldn't it wasn't like you know uh, an electronic system where you could just introduce a trillion dollars worth of beads uh overnight uh, if you see those charts and stuff, uh, Nick Zabo has a number of works. I think I think Shelling Out has specifically charts and stuff about um, that kind of work. But you would see these things fade out and lose their scarcity over periods of 40, 50, even 100 years. Um, so it was much slower than what we think of with the consequences of fiat money that are extremely fast. When they hit this tipping point, they just they just go... They, they just lose all trust because there is actually no scarcity backing it. Um, it's it's in, entirely reliant on trust in the authority that is, quote-unquote, keeping it scarce. Um, so there's so many great things to dig into, and we've covered similar stuff on the show uh, numerous, numerous times. So I, I would definitely go check out just past episodes on Anchor and or um, CryptoEconomy.life to go digging through that because um, there's a ton to cover there. Uh, and uh, we will be jumping into part two soon. Um, I don't know if part three is out yet. Where are they in this? Because this is not a very old article. Let me just go to Monsieur's, Monsieur Mamadov. I hope I'm saying that name right. They, these are both a little bit difficult names, so I hope I'm not embarrassing myself there. Okay, yes, yeah, so this is the only one that is out in good audience. Uh, the good audience uh, publication picked it up, which they actually picked up uh, my uh, article on Satoshi's vision, too. Uh, these guys have a, a number of good things to post every once in a while. They find good stuff. Winner takes most, winner takes all. Uh, Brandon Quittums. Okay, so we've got a uh, Monsieur recently clapped for another one we're going to be doing on the show. Um, if you have not uh, listened to the... Uh, Bitcoin is a fungus or mycelium <laughs> episode. That's a really good one, and that's a part two of three series. Um, and uh, uh, definitely check those out. But it looks like we only have part one out of this series so far. Um, so go check it out. Um, look at the other stuff that they have uh, up there. Let me give some drop some applause on this one. This is a really good article. I'm really excited about part two and part three. Um, so we will definitely be covering those on the show. And he seemed really excited that I was doing this. So uh, that makes it all the better. Um, all right. Uh, with that, uh, I'll go ahead and close this here. i got to get a lot, a lot of work to get back to. Um, and hopefully I will catch you guys with another episode before the end of the week. Keep an ear out and keep checking CryptoEconomy.life to stay in touch. Um, and I am starting an email list where I will just kind of throw in uh, summaries and um, I haven't got MailChimp set up yet, so you'll probably see the form, um, but uh, uh, nothing will start going out yet. Um, but uh, when I do, um, I'm going to have summaries, collections of uh, episodes for you know the recent past, every you know, two, three weeks, however often I want to just kind of send this out. I don't want to bombard people's email. Um, 
and uh, make it so uh, easy to keep up with uh, new things as far as articles and or other things I'm trying to add to the whole Crypto Economy Life uh, uh, website and just idea um, because I, I think I want to start, I'm doing a lot as far as really just trying to get in shape and eat right. Um, and I think that, I think that has, uh, I think that really applies to this whole thing. And like I said, I've got other things going on in the background. So uh, it's a way to keep you guys updated on stuff, even if I get kind of sparse with some of my episodes. Um, so join that uh, and keep an eye out with that on CryptoEconomy.life. And don't forget to check out Monsieur Mamadov and Yassine, uh, let me, Elmandra, I believe is how you say it. I looked it up on YouTube. Sometimes their pronunciations are wrong there. <laughs> All right, guys, um, uh, you can also support this show uh, by um, contributing to uh, Anchor.fm. actually has kind of like their own like built-in Patreon type thing. And uh, uh, that would actually be wonderful if you want to support the show. You can go there or you can donate on the website and help all the stuff that help support all of the stuff that I'm doing in the background um, and bringing this content to you guys. So thank you so, so much for listening. Please subscribe, share the show with all of your friends in the Bitcoin and crypto space. There is so much stuff to learn with this mountain of audio I have made from so many different authors and people's works inside this ecosystem. Uh, it's just a gold mine of stuff. Uh, so definitely share it out there, uh, spread it around, and I will catch you all next time on the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys. Thank you.